friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. Thank you for joining us again this week. We love our listeners and love that you keep tuning in. Today, we will be talking in the second part of the show with Dr. Donna Harrison. She is CEO of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We're calling on her to debunk the claims of the left about uh, how suddenly a post-Roe world will be a dangerous world for pregnant women. But first, as our entire TCA team has such a long history in this pro-life battle, and we are now looking at a new horizon post-Roe, we have our dear friend Catherine Jean Lopez with us of the National Review as we discuss what this new world looks like and how we can be meeting it. I'm happy to have Ashley McGuire with me alongside me, my colleague at the Catholic Association. Welcome to the show, Catherine. Thank you. I was very sorry to miss uh, the great talk that you had last week. I was out, of, as you know, I was uh, out of the country and having terrible computer issues and connectivity issues. But I was in Avila the day of uh, that you recorded, and I prayed for for all of you, for for all of us in the United States uh, facing these tumultuous times. And I was thinking in, in that medieval town how all times are tumultuous and all times are difficult. And we maybe you agree, we all we all tend to think that our times are the worst. Yeah, the, the other day I was awake at like three o'clock in the morning. I guess they call it doom scrolling. <laughs> I saw on Twitter looking at how awful everything in the world is. And during the medieval times, at least they didn't have Twitter. <laughs> well, but they had the plague, Catherine, which might have they been wasted. Have we have some plagues of our own, too. But, but it is, uh, I, I really do think we need to remind ourselves to step away from cable news, you know, internet news, our phones. I'm preaching to myself as much as anybody because we don't have power over everything, but we do have power over the choices we make and, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to live virtuous lives or not. And what we're going to witness to our family and friends and the people in their lives about what's important, what's on CNN right now isn't the most important thing in the world, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're talking about cultivating a supernatural attitude, right? Like having having the long vision that includes eternity and not not letting the, right. the problems of the world mire us in in this just sort of horizontal vision that that is so easy to do when you're doom scrolling and <laughs> seeing that the world does seem to be going to hell in a handbasket. But I guess it's always feel, felt that way. What do you think, Ashley? Is this some, something that's that's um, more prevalent today, this kind of feeling of the world is falling, the sky is falling? Well, you know, it's funny because I am not very active on Twitter. And just this morning, I checked my email and I got an email from Twitter saying, Ashley, check your, you know, X hundreds of, you know, pings on Twitter because I do have a handle. And I was like, oh, because the last time I did that, it was after I went on NPR and talked about the transgender mandate. And let's just say I had a lot of feedback and I <laughs> forgot that I had written an article for the Wall Street Journal about Title IX and then joined Catherine on this panel for the National Review Institute. So I had lots of pings and 
you know, a couple of them were just so ugly, but overall I felt like it was a really positive panel that we had. We were joined um, also by Gracie and my colleague Maureen Ferguson and Lee Sneed. And it was, I thought, one of the more sort of positive and uplifting conversations that, you know, structured conversations I've had about the issue in, in a really long time. And if anything, I would say it sort of characterizes the positive forward-looking nature of our movement, which is, and this was something that I said on the, on the webinar with, with Catherine, which is that, you know, it's been so great to see that since the Dobbs decision came down, um, that pro-lifers have had what I think is a wonderful combination of joy and sobriety. And that we, you know, remember, uh, I think it was Michelle Obama who said, when they go low, we go high. Um, and you know, I, there's, I, there's a lot about Michelle Obama that I actually like, and I've just always remembered that line, and I really think, like, right now, that is sort of sums things up. The other side is fire-torching pregnancy centers, and we are having webinars talking about what are the next steps to help women. So that has kind of given me a sort of positive outlook, especially going into the 4th of July weekend. Catherine, I've, I've always found that the pro-life side is the joyful, happy, normal family side, and that the pro-abortion side tends to very quickly devolve into stridency and aggression and, and just like putting forward, uh, their face seems to be the, just putting forward all the negativity um, around their side, not, not the positive uh, vibes that you get at a pro-life event. Do you, do you find that too? Or do you, or you who are very much on the front lines, I know very often praying before abortion centers and things, or do you find that there's also a, a, a pro-choice side that's that's sweet like us? When you contrast, say, the March for Life with you know the, the march, the women's marches, the, the, the pro-abortion women's marches, and I in my life have not used the word pro-abortion so much because I'll, I'll say abortion advocates because I know that there are many people who describe themselves as pro-choice who are not enthusiastic about abortion. Mm-hmm. They want this is most Americans. Polling keeps telling us most Americans who describe themselves as pro-choice, they, they want limits. They don't want abortion on demand without apology, which is what the people with the signs uh-huh. on, the, on the protesting the end of row often have these signs. I, I was, when did I go? I went to Washington the weekend after Roe. So yeah, it was Saturday after Friday. And that's the first thing I saw at Union Station, people with signs that said abortion on demand without apology. And just this Saturday, I was at our normal Witness for Life on the first Saturday of every month. It's been going on for like 15 years and uh, at Old St. Patrick's Church in Lower Manhattan. And once again, we were there were human blockades keeping us from walking after mass. To, to pray the rosary. That's all we do. Pray the rosary across the street from Planned Parenthood. And it took an hour before we could move at all because the police decided to threaten to arrest people who were blocking the pedestrian walkways, you know. But the contrast between the crass, ugly, bloody rhetoric out there and, say, the March for Life, it's, you couldn't be more opposite, you know. The March for Life is is hopeful. It's It's joyful, even though we were going to the Supreme Court to protest Roe versus Wade. You know, it was also a celebration and will continue to be a celebration of the gifts of life. Since Dobbs, 
There's been a new poll, it's a Harvard-Harris poll that was released uh, this week, and it found that a large majority, 72% of Americans, would support banning abortions after 15 weeks, and almost half, 49%, would support bans at six weeks. And this is described as a dramatic shift in public opinion since as early as this past May before Dobbs. Do you think, uh, either one of you, Ashley and, and Catherine, do you think that um, this, the, that the ugly rhetoric and aggression of the pro-choice side has uh, opened people's eyes to what the, what the pro-choice side really wants, which is what you said you saw in these signs, Catherine, um, full, full force abortion without apologies? I certainly, I certainly hope so. I, I, I certainly hope the more extremist the rhetoric and the, the legislation, the more that, that people say, no, no, this, this isn't representative. Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, I mean, she had an all-out abortion extravaganza when she signed six, uh, six bills in anticipation of the end of Roe. Um, you know, I, I think the more the more you see this kind of stuff, um, celebrities canceling the Fourth of July, celebrities being in Paris and and pretending that that uh, Par- Paris has abortion on demand without apology, which it doesn't. Yeah, I, I I think there'll be more of a backlash. I certainly pray that's the case. Well, I was going to ask about those same polls and. And, you know, I, I kind of remember one coming out after Texas passed its bill showing that the majority of Americans when polled about whether or not, you know, it should be illegal to have an abortion after you can see a, a heartbeat said, yeah. And so, you know, do you get the impression that maybe Americans are kind of realizing they didn't understand what overturning Roe v. Wade meant and maybe better understanding that actually now this issue is kind of the balls punted back to them? I don't know how how conscious people are yet <laughs> that they didn't know what Roe versus Wade was, <laughs> you know, which has been the case. Um, but I, I think you know, the more, the more this is out in the open, which is what we asked for, for, you know, we want the end of abortion in America, but in asking for an end to Roe, we, we wanted to have an actual debate. And now that that's being forced, I do think that people will, will slowly come to realize this. One of my questions is, you know, what will the Democrats do? You know, it'll be, we'll have a much healthier country if the Democrats leave room for pro-lifers in their party. And if we can have real debates about how to actually help women, um, you know, the, the more this rhetoric is about the right to a dead baby, which is what a lot of these abortion enthusiastic um, politicians and celebrities, this is what they're, and people on the street, this is what they want. They're not talking about actual choice because they don't want and they don't think it's possible for, for women to, uh, to be mothers. Um, they don't think it's possible for, for young women to be responsible with, you know, how, how, they, how they live their lives. You know, obviously there are extreme circumstances and they're difficult situations. And as you said, Ashley, before, but we, we actually want to help those women in all those situations and, and not have the, all of the uh, pressures in her life telling her she has to have an abortion. There was an op-ed this week in the Wall Street Journal by my friend Chris Bell, who runs the Good Counsel Maternity Homes in New York. And, you know, he testifies to all of the women who've come to him, thousands of women, you know, during his, his time 
running these homes who say they can't have this baby and they wind up having the baby and they're grateful they have the baby. And it, it just requires people who love women enough to walk through the difficulties of life with them. And thanks be to God there, you had the sisters of life featured on our, on a recent show. They give their lives to God and to helping, helping women for life. One thing that was an eye, an eye opener for me. And I think for many Americans was the way that the corporate world immediately uh, stood up and said, no, no problem. We at Amazon and we at all these different important uh, companies said, we will pay you know, $4,000 or $3,500 for you, a uh, young woman in Texas or woman in Texas to fly to New York and, and abort your 32-week-old baby. And to me, uh, you know, it, it just sort of makes my mouth drop open. I mean, they're telling this to women who maybe don't have coverage for their children's diabetes medication for their insulin. Women who might be, you know, just terrified that a, that a, that a short illness, a short stay in the hospital would just knock them out of the capacity to take care of their families. You know, maybe somebody who has a sick husband who hasn't been able to add him to their ins- her insurance policy because she has crappy insurance from one of these companies or Obamacare, you know. Wonderful Obamacare, uh, wonderful in quote and scare quotes, that doesn't pay for so many important things. So that you end up having insurance that you're paying for, but it's not helping you. But don't worry, because if you're pregnant, Amazon will make sure that you can have a, a quick abortion in Texas. They'll fly you there and back, and then you'll be at the at the truck assembly line, you know, loading the trucks uh, as quick as possible, and not not paying for your maternity leave. Do you think Americans are opening their eyes to the economics of abortion and how it keeps women, you know, tied to the factory floor? I certainly, I certainly hope so. I mean, the idea that that uh, you know, I think these corporations thought they were checking a box. You know, we're for women, but as as you you said, Gracie, as you made clear, there could couldn't be anything more cynical and cruel to women than to offer to pay for their out-of-state abortions. Because why are they doing this? They're doing this because it's good for business. It's better Mm -hmm. if the women don't have children because then you have to take time off and you, you know, kids get sick. Kids have to go to the doctor, all of these things. Yeah. But again, this isn't, this isn't her choice. This is pro-abortion. Catherine, what there's sort of two looming questions out there. You know, one you mentioned is what are the Democrats going to do and, you know, how sort of serious is this threat about quote unquote nuking the filibuster um, to codify Roe? And the other one, I'm wondering how closely you followed this and whether, you know, this is something we should worry about are these um, state courts that are just sort of, I mean, really brazenly seeming to step in and block these trigger laws that have gone into place. You know, what do you make of, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, what do you make of those sort of two new fronts, if you will? Yeah, I have to I have to admit, Ashley, I was a little shocked, as, as maybe too strong of a word, but to see that there were injunctions in place the first weekday after Roe had been, been um been thrown out in Utah and Louisiana. You know, I thought if, if anywhere we could outlaw abortion, it was it was Louisiana, um, where you know the, the Democrats are pro life. I um that's that's absolutely a challenge, and I am I am hoping that you know the the federal federal society judges who care about the Constitution, you know, to come come through, um, because one thing 
and and there have been some uh, some very unfair things said about what conservative legal theory is. We don't we don't want judges to legislate from the, from the bench. That's what we've been against. That's what Roe did. Um, we simply want the uh, the uh, judges to uh, to look at the law. And um, and in some states, you, you are seeing that some of the legislation being drafted does come in and is a clash with, with the state constitution. You know, uh, many states outlawed abortion before um, didn't let them any, anymore. So, yeah, as you say, Ashley, none of us have a crystal ball, and there is going to be a judicial fight um, in the states. Um, but I do pray that the more we can educate people, um, the more we're going to have a saner culture when it, it comes to abortion. Um, because, you know, the, the, the mercy is that people aren't as extreme as what we're hearing in the media. Um, the, one of the big challenges is to make sure that we, uh, persevere in, in communicating, um, to people who are on the fence. And, um, and I do wonder too, I certainly hope and pray that, uh, people are, will be looking for more sober voices, um, when they find themselves a little repulsed by the more extreme voices that don't represent them. An update uh, from Florida on that topic of the, these these laws that were triggered into effect with Roe is um, our own 15-week ban that was signed into law just before Dobbs was uh, was put on hold, and now has a second cert. The Second Circuit Court has put it back into into play. So, right now in Florida, you can't abort your 17-week-old baby girl because she happens to be a girl, and you were you would prefer to have a boy. And things, you know, I've seen you, you, you know, and uh, many of our listeners know that I, I do uh, OB ultrasound as part of my daily, my daily work. I, I see fetuses every day. They're my patients. And I've had parents abort children for a cleft palate. I've, I've seen that. And, um, you know, when people think about abortion, they talk about uh, many, many good, good people who would like to see some, some, some abortion rights preserved uh, they think about these horrifying situations that all of us are so aware of, of rape and incest and things. But sadly, what's really happening out there a lot is abortion for for just terrible reasons, terrible reasons of disliking a certain type of child or not wanting to deal with a, with, with, with a tiny disability or a tiny uh, problem in the child. Anyway, that's that's my perspective. And, and I think that the left, uh, that the, the pro-abortion side, is letting letting all that show, and and it is Christy, affecting people. That that hits close to home because we're about to hit the year anniversary of the death of uh, my friend's father, Joseph Katursky, who was a philosopher who taught at Fordham, and um, he had a cleft palate, and um, and he he fought for for the rights of the unborn on the most intellectual levels and on the most pastoral levels. He worked in both post-abortion healing with the Sisters of Life. And uh, he, his parents were told that he, um, he wouldn't be able to speak. And he, of course, wound up this world-class uh, lecturer. And, and um, he certainly knew how to speak. Um, and, um, 
and he kind of had an adorable face because of the cleft palate. You know, we all we're all all unique. I would have never told him he was adorable in in, uh, in real life, <laughs> but he he can't flush. No, okay. You know, that's that's a beautiful thing that we do on our side is that we, we hold up the, the beauty of, of each person, regardless of disability or, you know, being formed in a, in a somewhat inconvenient way or something that has to, to be overcome or... And I think that really rings that really rings real, real true to the hearts of, of people. People are naturally compassionate. You know, when when somebody sees a puppy, they oh, they ooh and they ah. <laughs> you know that that's real compassion in people's hearts. And and I think it's wonderful the way the pro the, the pro life world, you know, activates that that compassion and says all of us are flawed. All of us are are disabled in some way. <laughs> Me first. <laughs> and uh you know and, and thank and thank god that that we're all different and and have all our own particular little weaknesses all together we we make a, a you know a beautiful bouquet of different flowers you know that you mentioned puppies <laughs> makes me think there's there's one thing that first i was outraged by but then i was hardened by often if you if you're outside planned parenthood in manhattan you'll see workers like playing with dogs and there actually was there's this one dog that has three legs <laughs> who everyone loves and the owner actually gets into fights with pro-life people sometimes or arguments and I just think you know there's there's a compassion in there there's a blindness but you know this is why I love that you post sonograms Gracie on Twitter because if we actually looked people still have the capacity for compassion and recognizing that this is we're talking about real human lives but because they're not you know they're not outside crying or giggling you know um it's easier to look away Catherine I'm gonna throw a question at you that you gave to me in our webinar no no, it's a a good question (laughs) you said you asked me you know what what would be um, my marching orders for pro-life women right now. And, and I'd love to hear, you know, as somebody who's literally on the front lines, you know, looking into the eyes of women going into these clinics, looking into the eyes of the, the workers of these clinics, um, someone who, you know, this is not an abstraction, um, but a true reality. You know, what would be your, what are a few things that pro-lifers can and should do right now in this moment? Well, I think the first one, well, the first one would be to pray. Um, You know, many of us prayed for the end of Roe, and we need to continue to pray for healing and conversion and, yes, the end of abortion. Um, But as as, um, some activists put it, abortion needs to be unthinkable, and only with God's grace will that happen. And um, so in addition to prayer, love, which uh, is a fruit of, of prayer, we can get really angry. Um, I, I know I have <laughs> um, reading some of the news stories and the disingenuousness of, of some of them. Some of them, you know, it, it's, it's just it's misinformation. Um, I shouldn't assume it's always disingenuous. Um, be, be love in the midst of this. You know, going back to what we were talking about in the, the eternal view, you know, the long game here. Um, that last tweet or text message or, you know, response or reaction to something about this debate, did we do it in a loving, compassionate way? You know, 
um, telling the truth, but doing it with love. And then also asking everyone doing an examination of conscience, what more can I do? Um, you know, are, are there donations we can make? Are there, is there time we can spend? And in that examination of conscience also do the young people in our lives know that we would help them if they found themselves in uh, an unplanned pregnancy situation or would they be terrified that we would judge them? That's so important. That, that I think is so crucial because I, I do worry. I'm very aware when I, um, when I like pray outside an abortion clinic or, or do sidewalk counseling that people think that we're judging them. And that's not, <laughs> that's not what it's about. It's uh, I, 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 we talked a little bit about this last week. I just, I have so such a sense of penance when, when I see an abortion clinic, when I think about abortion, because we haven't done enough, you know, um, including we haven't, we haven't communicated the, the truth about the human person. Like, Paul the the sixth did, you know, there was so much dissent when when Humanity Vitae came out. But Humanity Vitae is, is was right and and unfortunately, um it was prathetic. You know, um men men and women are at odds with one another as you know, both of you have written beautifully about, but unnecessarily. Um and, and a mother mother against her child. So yeah, those would those I think are, are kind of critical for moving forward and, and the prayer part is so crucial because I know I've found um, myself falling in this trap. You, you, you want to do as much as possible, but it, it won't be as loving and fruitful as it should be unless we're, we're praying. That's great advice, Catherine. Always start with prayer, right? Never take the first step without, without praying first. And, and that way God does all the work. And we just, we just have to, we just have to show up. <laughs> we're just instruments, yeah. And it, it's always dangerous if we think we're the ones doing it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. when we get in trouble. <laughs> it makes us activists instead of, uh, instead of workers in the vineyard, I right, think. Right, right. So Catherine, is there, is it, are we able to access the webinar? Are our listeners able to access it and where yeah. could they get it? If you go to the National Review Institute YouTube page, mm-hmm. it was the one on, on top last time I checked, it might be you down soon, um, but the National Review uh, Institute YouTube page, and if you look on um, my Twitter uh, at Catherine Lopez, I'll uh, I have links to it, and I'll relink to it. Well, thank no you, doubt. thank you for that for for the webinar, and thank you for your constant and beautiful witness to all the ways that uh, we can we can keep advancing the culture of life. Thank you, Catherine. I'm glad I got to talk to the last of the the Catholic Association gang. with consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie from the Catholic Association, and we're very happy to have Dr. Donna Harrison of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists joining us for the rest of the show. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Harrison. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on because uh, you're you're exactly the right person uh, to talk about uh, this topic of really understanding the, the messaging on the pro-choice side and how they are sort of twisting things around, which, you know, they're very complicated people and, and they're very smart. They're really good about messaging. They're good. They're really good with narrative.
narratives. And even though they don't have, as I'm sure you agree, they don't have the truth on their side. They don't have science on their side. They don't have ethics on their side. You know, they do have a lot of support from the media. They have, you know, their voices are amplified. I am so glad you asked me about that because it has been amazing to me the fear-mongering that's going on. And if you listen carefully to the narrative, people that are brought on as experts that talk about, oh, we're afraid that this is going to happen or we're afraid that that's going to happen, produce absolutely no evidence that any of it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's all complete speculation. It's all it's all designed to increase anxiety, but not to shed any light on the reality of the situation. Like, as you say, it's being done to amplify fear uh, and loathing. <laughs> and um, why don't we just go through two or three, uh, or, or as many as we can get through, um, of some of these lies that are being propagated. And I would I would say, just uh, listening um, you know, to the buzz uh, on, the, on the mainstream media, I would say that probably the, the biggest lie is that when abortion is not on the table, what we colloquially know as abortion, then a woman's life is in danger from ectopic pregnancy and, you know, other, other things that would threaten a woman's life because of her pregnancy. So for instance, um, preeclampsia, we'll say another one, which is dangerously high blood pressure. Um, but why don't we start with ectopic pregnancy? We keep hearing this. Women with ectopic pregnancies are not going to get the care they need and they're going to die. Please explain to our listeners what's an ectopic pregnancy and how treatment for an ectopic has nothing to do with abortion itself. I'll be glad to do that. An ectopic pregnancy is when the baby has implanted outside of the uterus, outside of the womb. So the baby, oftentimes in an ectopic, the baby is in the tube. And about 93% of the time when an ectopic pregnancy is discovered, there is no baby there. The, the baby's body has not formed and or has died already. So it's only a very small percent of the time the baby's alive anyway. In those cases, we do not do a procedure that is anywhere comparable to an abortion. Mm-hmm. In those cases, an ectopic pregnancy is treated with surgery. And so it, it isn't even the same treatment. And the fact that it is that there is no risk for women not being treated for ectopic pregnancy is well illustrated by the fact that Catholic hospitals, at which I train, Catholic hospitals have been treating ectopic pregnancies for as long as ectopic pregnancies have been discovered. So there's no need to, to do an abortion to treat an ectopic pregnancy. Even ACOG admits that the treatment for an ectopic pregnancy has nothing to do with the treatment for abortion. But my husband and I train together at a at our local public hospital. It's, a, it's an enormous, very intense place called Jackson Memorial Hospital. And yeah. at, at the time, and I'm not sure what it's like now, but at the time, abortion was not allowed on the premises. It was not performed. And my husband did his training in, in OBGYN first before he switched to radiology. And I was very, I did a lot of work at, in the OBGYN department as a medical student as an, and as, as a resident in radiology. And um, I saw ectopic pregnancies being treated all the time. And yes. I never, and this was always done without the option of abortion. But why is the left trying to tangle us up in in the idea, like what are they, what are they, what are they proposing for us? Like what, what are they trying to make well, us think? What they're trying to do is avoid at all costs talking about what an elective abortion is. An elective abortion is a procedure that is designed for the specific purpose of killing the human being in the womb for no medical reason. That is what an elective abortion is by definition. And in 
states that forbid elective abortion, that's what they forbid. They explicitly do not forbid treatment of ectopic pregnancy. They don't forbid treatment of miscarriage. They don't forbid treatment of a woman who has to be separated from her baby in order for her to live, even if the baby isn't capable of living outside. None of those things are forbidden. Okay, and the so left wants, wants to make people think that somehow by not allowing women, not allowing the killing of a human being in the womb for no medical reason, that somehow that has something to do with ectopics or miscarriage or treatments to save the mother's life. It doesn't. Okay. In in our training and in, in, in this hospital that didn't perform abortions, not from a that was and that wasn't a rule from a religious perspective. It was a public hospital and abortions were not performed in a in this public hospital. The OBGYNs and when I was a medical student rotating through there, they did a lot of DNCs for women who were miscarrying, uh, women yes. whose baby had died and what that we called that a missed abortion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and let's let's acknowledge Donna, it's true that there's a lot of there's a lot of verbiage that goes around that goes uh, that is associated with OB care with obstetric care that is very confusing to the lay public, right? Yes. Um, yes. So one thing I've seen in the media and and in, and in big publications is are women talking about their miscarriages and how during their miscarriage they needed an abortion. Now, what are they what are they mixing up? And there's and these women are saying and some of them are famous actresses and they're saying, "I had a miscarriage. If today I had a miscarriage, I wouldn't receive the abortion care that I needed and I would have died." So, in in X state. Explain please to our listeners what what are they trying to what are they mixing up here for us and what are we really supposed to understand about this? Yes, you have to be clear about terminology because the word abortion in the medical literature has about 16 different definitions. What the pro-abortion side is trying to do is confuse those definitions. Uh And that's why we are explicitly clear about what we're talking about being forbidden when you forbid what most people call abortion. They're talking about elective abortion. That is a separation of the mother and the fetus that is done for the specific purpose of guaranteeing a dead fetus, a dead baby. That is not the same as a spontaneous abortion, which is where the baby's died. So if the baby has died, it's not an abortion in terms of what the public thinks of it as. Uh-huh. So the public thinks of abortion as elective abortion. When a baby has died, that's a miscarriage. Now, yes, we do use a DNC to separate the baby who's died from the mom, oftentimes, but the baby's already dead. There's no ethical issue. There's no nothing being forbidden there. What's being forbidden when abortion is against the law in a state, what's being forbidden is the deliberate destruction of a human being who is alive inside the womb, and there's no reason to separate that human being except that the mother wants to have an abortion. That's okay. what we're talking about. Okay, and this is where the left is trying to get us all mixed up. They're, they're, they're equating the word abortion as we understand it colloquially and as it's understood in the law, Right. In the law, when we say that abortions are not, elective abortions are not permitted, this is not the same. We're not meaning that in the same sense as we mean miscarriage care or care for ectopic pregnancy. That is correct. And I am familiar with most of the laws around the country surrounding abortion. Not one of them, not one of them forbids miscarriage care. Not one of them forbids ectopic care. Not one of them forbids separating the mother and the fetus when the mother's life is in danger. Not one of them. So the left knows this, but they want to confuse and make people afraid so that people think that it isn't 
that elective abortion is not the issue, when in fact, elective abortion is the issue. That's mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Let me be devil's advocate then. Um, imagine a situation where, um, and this is sadly not uncommon, a woman is in the process of miscarrying and the baby still has a heartbeat, but okay. but the woman needs is getting sick. She's getting septic, Her fe- she's getting a fever. The baby has, the, the pregnancy has to end. In the sense, as you say, the woman has to be separated from the baby. Yes. Now, I wouldn't call that an abortion. I would call that pregnancy care. Can you explain that to us? I've been in that separation, crazy. I, I had that woman who was sick, very sick, and her blood pressure was dropping and the baby had a heartbeat. And I was preparing for separating the mom and the baby because in that scenario, the baby was at 18 weeks, could not possibly live outside the womb. In that scenario, you either separate the mom and the baby and the baby for sure dies, or you don't separate the mom and the baby and both of them die. Mm -hmm. So in those cases, APLUG has been very careful to call those pre-viable separations, which are done for the purpose of saving the mother's life, not for the purpose of destroying the baby's life. So in those really tragic situations. Man, my heart still goes out Mm -hmm. to the woman who was in that situation. In those situations, we try to deliver the baby as intact as possible so that the mom can hold her baby and grieve and the family can grieve. Because what we acknowledge as pro-life OBGYNs is that this child is a human being who is a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a granddaughter. This, This is a human being in relationship to other human beings whose life needs to be grieved. We don't shred the baby into pieces and make grieving difficult or impossible. That's what we try to do under circumstances where we have to separate the mom and the baby to save the mother's life. Donna, all the little hairs in my arms are standing up. You made me so sad. (laughs) That's such a sad situation. It was Um, very sad. Those are terrible situations, but yet those are the situations that people point to, for instance, um, in, in cases in Poland uh, that I read about in the in the news, and I'm not 100% sure if this is what actually happened, that when a woman was miscarrying and the pregnancy was mismanaged, what, what sounds to me like mismanagement, where the woman wasn't separated from the baby soon enough and became septic and, and died. So is this something that Americans need to worry about in, in a well-managed um, OBGYN setting in a state where abortion is not available after a certain few weeks? No, not in a well-managed setting. Again, I was practicing in a Catholic hospital. So abortion is forbidden, and yet we were fully prepared to separate the mother and the baby when the mother's life is at stake. So what you what you have is, is you need to know that your OBGYN cares for you and for your child, but you also need to know that that OBGYN will act on behalf of the mom to, to save the mom's life. If, if we could save both, we would. So we don't need to be afraid that for some reason, if we, if we prevent elective abortion, that it will affect care that the mom needs to have to save her life. There is not a law in the country that forbids emergency care for a mom when separating the mom and the baby is necessary to save the mom's life. There's not a state law in the country that does, that forbids that. Oh, thank you for clarifying that, Donna. And and I hope it's not too in the weeds for our listeners, but I, I do feel that the other side is making so much, so, such a mess out of people's heads that it's, I think it's very important to understand these subtleties. And, and they're complicated. They're definitely complicated. Let's go to the other end of pregnancy. A, a baby's bigger. Um, 
could survive outside of the womb. Maybe it's uh, 24 and a half weeks or 25 weeks, and the mother develops preeclampsia. The baby mm-hmm. has to be delivered. She has dangerously high blood pressure. The pro-choice left or the pro-abortion left would suggest that in this case, an abortion should be performed. What's our answer to this and what would happen in, in a pro-life state? Well, it's ridiculous to say that abortion should be performed under those circumstances. You do a C-section. You separate the mom and the baby in 10 minutes under circumstances where both the mom can be cared for and the baby can be cared for. And abortion is done oftentimes outpatient, takes days in a hotel room. Mm -hmm. It is nothing at all like emergency life-saving care. And by the way, all OBGYNs do that kind of emergency life-saving care all the time. That's what we're trained to do, Mm -hmm. is to separate the mom and the baby. So routinely, when that woman comes into the emergency room, and she'll come in about once a month, I mean, we we see this often, especially at a busy OB-GYN facility, you simply deliver her. You you go to the operating room, you do a C-section, baby's cared for, mom's cared for. That's what obstetrical care is. So there's no scenario where a woman would say, I don't want a premature baby. I would rather have an abortion than deliver a premature baby with all that comes with that. If she doesn't want to care for that baby, there are, uh, there are other couples that would love to adopt a baby, and many of them would be willing to adopt a premature baby. I actually have a friend of mine who's adopted several premature babies and several babies who have had life-limiting diagnoses mm-hmm. to care for them. She's a nurse. It was a beautiful thing. So just because the mom may not want her baby at any stage mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we kill the baby. It means that we find the, the home for the baby that is the right thing for the baby. That's that's what family care laws are about. They're, they're about the best interests of the baby. But we don't just simply kill a child at any age, you know, whether it's newborn or whether it's two or whether it's premature or whether it's five. We don't just kill them because the parents don't want that child. That's, that's why we have child protection laws. <laughs> exactly. One thing that the left is, uh, is promoting very heavily is the fact that pregnancy continues to be uh, a time when a woman's health is, could be precarious. And she runs certain risks that she doesn't run when she's pregnant, correct? This is, even though, uh, I, I always say, and I, I think you would agree with me, this is the safest time and place in the history of mankind um, to be pregnant as far as maternal mortality and, and morbidity. But the left says, well, the, you know, pregnancy is so dangerous and there's maternal mortality that any pregnancy can be, uh, any, ab- any abortion can always be justified on the grounds that, a, that pregnancy is dangerous. What, have you heard this argument? And do you think that argument can have any traction? I've heard it, and it's a ridiculous argument, and it's very cleverly ridiculous. Uh-huh. The, uh, the statistics on abortion, uh, on deaths after abortion and complications after abortion isn't collected. It's not routinely collected. Uh-huh. We collect information about women who die uh, in the hospital and after pregnancy, and so we have very good statistics about uh, women that die in the hospital, you know, giving birth. We have horrible to non-existent statistics about women who die after abortion. And so in this vacuum of information, the left says, oh, look, look, women could die after, after um, giving birth. But what they, don't, what they don't say is that many, many long-term studies done in countries where, where the country owns the medical record, for example, in Finland, mm-hmm. show a seven-fold increased risk of death by suicide alone from women who abort as compared to women who give birth. Oh, that's so sad. We know that maternal mortality has some very preventable factors. Prenatal care, delivering in an appropriate 
uh, uh, facility that's able to do emergency C-sections, uh-huh. education for women, clean water. We know what can prevent maternal mortality, but we are looking at a completely closed picture when it comes to how many women in this country actually die in 2022. And that's obscene in, in, in this day and age where you can know to the minute who is dying of other diseases and we don't pay attention to who is dying from abortion. I think that is one of the things that definitely has to change in this new post-row generation. Well, I hope that that's something that the left, that, you know, the peop- the powers that be would allow because, uh, you know, abortion is treated like nothing else in this, in, in medicine. Well, I hate to call abortion medicine. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's not medicine. Abortion is not healthcare. Uh, you and I both agree on that. Uh, it's so- not. What it is, it's it's trying to solve a social problem with surgery. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's definitely true that some pregnancies uh, at certain times are are inconvenient and 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 are difficult. But at the same time, we have lots of difficult, inconvenient circumstances that we as human beings deal with. And we deal compassionately with, and but we don't have to kill a human being in those circumstances. We 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 shouldn't just kill human beings to solve social problems. Those are beautiful words to end on, Dr. Harrison. Thank you so much for clearing all that up for us. I hope that our listeners were able to follow along, but I I do feel that these are very important details to know so that we can, you know, protect ourselves from the the rhetoric of the of the pro-choice side, which uh, is just endless. They're just endlessly finding new things to throw at our heads. <laughs> Crazy, thank you very much for allowing me to come on. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we ponder together one of the Gospel's most famous passages. A lawyer approaches Jesus with one of the more important questions a man or woman, boy or girl, can ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do, in other words, to get to heaven? We don't get to heaven simply by being born. Don't get to heaven simply by being reborn in baptism as a child, unless we die in that state. We don't get to heaven by coasting there. It's a choice, or precisely a series of choices, and the most important choices we'll ever make. It's a choice, precisely, to love. Jesus questioned the lawyer what he himself thought the answer was to his own question, and the lawyer gave what Jesus admitted was the right response. Putting together two parts of what God had revealed in the Old Testament, the lawyer said that to inherit eternal life, we must love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, to love our neighbor as ourselves. On these two commandments, or better, this twofold commandment, Jesus himself said elsewhere, hang all the law and the prophets. This twofold commandment is a summary, in other words, of the entire Old Testament, which is all about God's love for us and about how he calls us to love each other. It's no surprise, therefore, that Jesus said, do this and you will live. The whole Testament was God's revelation to help his people enter into life and be prepared through love to embrace life to the full when it finally was revealed in the person, words, and deeds of Jesus. But as conceptually simple as Jesus' answer is, there are obviously practical considerations. The scholar of the law, however, didn't ask Jesus for help putting the love of God with 100% of our mind, heart, soul, and strength, as well as 100% of our time, talents, and wallets into practice. Instead, he asked him to make concrete how he was to love his neighbor by querying, who is my neighbor? We've heard Jesus' answer so many times that to us the answer might seem obvious. 
but it certainly wasn't at the time of the lawyer. In fact, the question of who is one's neighbor was one of the most discussed and controversial debates among Israelites. A typical Jew was raised with an attitude to which Jesus referred in the Sermon on the Mount. You heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Therefore, if one were to love one's neighbor and detest one's enemy, it was crucial to determine who was one's neighbor and who was one's adversary. Almost all Jews admitted that one's neighbor extended beyond one's family or those who lived physically proximate. Most interpreters considered that one's neighbor included all fellow Israelites and those Gentiles who adhered to the Mosaic law. But no one was quite prepared for Jesus' answer, which he gave in the form of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He basically said that everyone is in our neighborhood, even those considered enemies, as Jews and Samaritans deemed each other. In the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus stresses that God's love has no limits, and that likewise, there can be no limit to our love of neighbor. The first point of God's love is often missed, but the fathers of the church, the saintly bishops in the early centuries of Christianity, saw this as necessary background for the proper understanding of the parable. They saw man as the person who had started to go down from the place of God's dwelling, represented by Jerusalem, to Jericho, literally the lowest place on earth, a thousand meters below sea level. His descent was sin. While walking in paradise, man was ambushed by the evil one who left him at the brink of death because of sin. The priest and the Levite were respectively those who, even though they knew the law and the prophets, chose to pass the nearly dead sinner by so that they wouldn't be contaminated by his sins. Eventually, Christ, the good Samaritan, came. When he beheld this man half dead, he had compassion on him and for all his wounds caused by sin. So as we read in the parable, he approached. Christ approached all the way from heaven, getting so close as to take on our nature, becoming God with us. He poured the oil and wine of his, of his redemptive blood on man's wounds to heal them. He brought him to the inn, which represents the church, and gave the innkeepers, all of us in the church, the instruction to care for the human person until he returned and to help nurse him back to health from his sins. The extremely generous two denarii and the promise for more upon his return were the treasure of Christ's merits, especially the sacraments, which continue the healing process within us. Finally, the reference to his return was an allusion to a second coming, when Jesus will come to repay each according to his deeds. Therefore, the parable of the Good Samaritan is first a commentary on God's love for us, and secondly, a clear illustration of Christ's statement during the Last Supper, love one another as I have loved you. Our love for each other is based not merely on our love for ourselves, love your neighbor as yourself, but on God's love for us. Never in the gospel did Jesus say, merely do what I say. He stated time and again, come follow me. He would set us an example and then tell us to imitate him. This is why Jesus was able to say at the end of the parable, go and do the same, because we were to follow his example of love. He was calling us to go and seek those who had been ambushed by the evil one and left at the point of death and sin, and patiently to take them to the church to nurse them back to hell health. He was also explicitly calling us to cross the road and approach all those who have been mugged, bruised, beaten, victimized, and abandoned by others in this world, and use our donkeys or cars or shoulders to bring them back to safety, to use our money to nurse them back to health. In other words, Jesus was giving us marching orders to love others, even those who seem to be our enemies, even those we find most despicable, to the point of sacrificing our life, our goods, and our time for them. To be a good Samaritan means to behave like Christ and draw close to those who are in need, close enough to become their neighbor. To live in Christ's kingdom is to see the whole world as our neighborhood and everyone in need as our neighbor. To be a Christian means to inconvenience ourselves for others, to draw near, 
to sacrifice. Now, after the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, overturning Roe versus Wade, all Catholics are called to become Good Samaritans with regard to those who are in vulnerable pregnancies, having been abandoned rather than supported by husbands or boyfriends or parents, grandparents, siblings, and friends, as well as toward the helpless boys and girls growing within them. Throughout the culture of death, which is at the root of so much violence in our culture, others are viewed as dangers rather than people in danger, as threats rather than those who need to be treated with love. Christ wants to change that. He's calling us Christians to be on the forefront in helping to bring about that change. And how urgent it is for us to start leading the world in this type of neighborly care, lest our neighborhoods ultimately become crime scenes and the whole world a big ditch. Pope Francis has been saying that one of the biggest problems facing the world is a globalized indifference. We've become so anesthetized to other people's pain, which you see every day on the news, murders during parades and in schools, war in the Ukraine, religious oppression in China and Hong Kong, church massacres in Nigeria, that we don't stop any longer even to weep, not to mention help. In response to that indifference, that hardness of heart that makes us insensitive to the plight of our neighbors and even family members, Jesus, the Pope says, is calling each of us anew to be a good Samaritan and to make ourselves neighbors to those who need our care. Christ says that our salvation depends on it. Do this and you will live, he tells the lawyer in today's gospel, which clearly implies that if we don't do it, we won't inherit eternal life. Therefore, out of love for us, Jesus, the Good Samaritan, draws near to us to give us his help at Mass, where we enter into his supreme act of Good Samaritan love. Like the man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus was himself ambushed in the Garden of Gethsemane, then stripped, beaten, and left for dead on Calvary. As he was dying, most of his disciples ran in the opposite direction. Only a few faithful followers, the Blessed Mother, St. John, St. Mary Magdalene, drew close to him and proved neighbor. As we approach the altar this Sunday to receive Jesus' body and blood, we ask him for that gift so that adoring him under the humble appearances of bread and wine, we might recognize him and all those in need and have the courage to love him in that disguise. Jesus tells us, do this in memory of me, which is go and do the same. May the Good Samaritan help us from within to become his hands, feet, and compassionate heart in the midst of an indifferent world that desperately needs us and the whole mystical body to become Christ-like brothers and neighbors to all those in need. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 